So May, you're writing an obituary for an amazing, accomplished scientist. Mm-hmm. What is the first detail you mention? What did they make for dinner? Yeah, that's a really good plan. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hello, and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Katie McKissick, a.k.a. Beatrice the Biologist. And I'm May Prince. And we are also joined today by my dog and a baby. We have an entire menagerie so, today. There she is. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, I guess I want to say I apologize, but maybe I shouldn't No, I think apologize. we're just going to keep adding characters to the, to yeah, the show. Yeah, we're just going to bring in more animals yeah. and tiny people yeah. every time. Just It'll be like a combination of Wizard of Oz and Snow White. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so true story. My dog had surgery this past week, so I didn't think that she could be left alone just yet. Yeah. Because I don't want her getting at those stitches. Yeah. So so she is here and... She's just chilling. Yeah, she's just hanging out at the table. She has a girdle <laughs> to keep her from scratching them. <laughs> and the baby is just, you know... She's just making noises. Also chilling and yeah. making noises. There we go. There we go. So, May. Yes. I believe you have something science brunch appetizery for us. Yeah. So, actually, last night I noticed an owl... In my backyard. Oh, cool. Well, sort of in my backyard. It was it was perched on top of a telephone pole okay. that I can see from my back door. And it was just sitting there, very still. And it was I could tell that it was turning its head and kind of like checking things out. Mm-hmm. And then I, I watched it for a while. I mean, it was up there for a couple minutes. And then it just swooped down. And it went... I could see it, it flew about half a block away and landed on another telephone pole and repeated that process. So it was mm. just like turning its head, like checking things out. Yeah. And I remember hearing about owls like a while ago, like how they hear and stuff and how well they see at night and stuff like that. So I, I started looking it up because I can't help myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm like <laughs> Googling like a mad person last night. And I, I remember hearing that their ears are asymmetrical. So like the ears on our head are at the same level and at the same placement on our head like if, if you, you're lucky if you cut our heads in half like both would look the same just like mirror images of each other owls are different so if you look at their head their left ear is actually lower than their right ear and i think it's slightly offset so like one is a little bit more forward on the skull than the other and what this does is it allows them to triangulate position based on sound which is insane and so this owl i mean they already have very good vision so apparently, like, their eyes kind of, they allow, it allows them to hunt at night. They kind of see night as we would see day in a way. But on top of that, they just, like, listen. If, they, if the mouse is squeaking, they can hear them up to half a mile away. Oh, my goodness. They can hear prey underground. And they're just, like, I mean, that is terrifying. <laughs> if I were a mouse, I would be freaking out if I saw an owl. And, like... I really wanted it to eat the rat that's been living in our backyard. <laughs> I don't know if there's a way to communicate that to the owl. Be like, it's over there. It's but, like those um, honey guides. It's like, let's work together on this. Exactly. Exactly. I'm like, can I just write the owl? Dear Mr. or Miss Owl. <laughs> Sorry, the honey guides was our appetizer from a couple episodes ago. Yeah, the honey guides were the birds uh, in sub-Saharan Africa that would kind of show humans where honeycombs were located so that then the humans could eat the honey and then leave them the honeycombs and they would like eat the grubs and stuff out of it, which is amazing. I wish there were a way for us to figure that out with owls and be like, yeah, you know, there's a 
there's a rat living in my garage or there's a neighbor's dog that won't stop barking. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Can just, you just do something just, about it, please? Just, you know, like, I don't want to okay, know. Okay, thanks. <laughs> but yeah, so if you're, if you're interested, we'll, we'll tweet some stuff about, about their, their hearing. I mean, it's, it's the way that it works is basically because the ears are offset that way. One ear gets the sound just a little bit faster than the other ear. So it's like 200 microseconds, they think. And that is enough for them to figure out basically, you know, the way that you triangulate is you figure out an angle, uh, you know, two fixed points, you know where they are, and then you can figure out where a third point is. I mean, that's how you kind of navigate with a compass. Right. I mean, that's how our ears work too, but just not as, as well. I mean, you can tell if a sound is coming from the left ear, you know, on the left side, because your left ear picked it up first and your brain interprets that. But we can't hear something from half a mile away and figure out such exact placement. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, that would be amazing. So yeah, so I was really thrilled that I'm going to, I wonder how many times I was at my back door and I didn't realize that there was an owl on top of the telephone pole because this was like at dusk. So I could see its outline, but I couldn't actually tell what it was. Um, only when it turned its head. I think it was a great horned owl because we hear it every once in a while. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's like a hoo, 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 you know. <laughs> yeah, I love that noise. <laughs> yeah. The other ones, I was like listening to the other possibilities of owls that live in our region and they were all like, Wee! like <laughs> terrible noises. I was like, okay, it's definitely not that one. <laughs> I know it was terrible. Yes. It's so terrible. So that's that's owl news for the week. <laughs> um, so who are who are you telling me about today? Well, today we're talking about Yvonne Brill. Okay, have you heard of her? Uh, it's vaguely vaguely familiar, but some of you will have heard of her for not a great reason. But we'll Uh-oh. get to that way later. <laughs> first things first. <laughs> uh, so uh, Brill is her married name. So she was born Yvonne. Madeleine Clays or Madeline. Mm-hmm. It's it's spelled L with an A I N E at the end, so I feel like it almost looks like Madeleine, but mm-hmm. Madeleine Clays. Uh, she was born in uh, 1924. Okay, December 30th. That's my brother's birthday too. Hmm. I should I should let her know, but uh, we'll we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, so she's born uh, near Winnipeg, in um, a country that I think it's pronounced Kenyada. <laughs> yes. Yes. Kenyada. Kenyada. I think it's the da at the end. That exotic country. Yes, yes. Just to the north of us. Oh, Canada. I love Canada. Uh, Her parents had uh, emigrated from Belgium. Mm -hmm. Her father had a carpentry construction business. And she, you know, grew up, went to school, pretty happy kid. And um, I love this. She didn't realize that she was smart (laughs) until (laughs) she just kind of did really well in high school, got really good grades and went, oh. I guess I'm kind of smart. Some of us have the opposite problem. <laughs> we don't it's, realize how dumb we are. It's so funny. I mean, and this is a direct quote. She just just didn't realize I was relatively intelligent until I got to high school and started getting top marks. So, you know, she's I'm brilliant, glad, but not really aware of it. I'm, I'm glad high school worked out for someone. Right. But um, <laughs> despite that, you know, again, the time uh, her, her dad said, oh, well, yeah, when you graduate from high school, just you can open up a dress shop or something. And and she kind of just said, yeah, I don't I don't really think I'm cut out for that exactly. Uh, she decided when she was much younger that she really wanted to go to the University of Manitoba, which is the closest school to where she grew up, mm-hmm. and uh, really wanted to go there and study engineering. But she was told that women couldn't enroll in the engineering program, so she Boo. studied math and chemistry instead. So it's like, okay, fine, you're going to close that door. I'll go over here. 
You guys. So what makes math and chemistry okay, but engineering, no. I know. Well, well that just shows you how thin this <laughs> this logic is. It doesn't, I don't know. It's very silly. I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah. It's, oh, my God. Uh, graduated in 1945. So World War II Woo. just ending. <laughs> World War II. I feel like all we do is talk about World <laughs> War II. Recurring character in this podcast. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, so... So she got a job at Douglas Aircraft Company in Southern California. So she moved from Canada to Los Angeles, moved on her mm-hmm. own, just kind of dove into her career and was really interested in the chemistry of propellants and fuels and huh. how those work. And um, she started working as an engineer. And I love that the way she looked at this was that, and it's, it's kind of the, the reverse of her her education, you know, in college, because they said, okay, you can't study engineering. So she said, okay, fine, I'll just, I'll study these, you know, pure sciences since you don't want me to study engineering and the application of them, which is weird. But then she found when she got into her career, because chemistry was a really established field, there were all these roadblocks that were already set up for women because it was like, oh, well, women can't do this, this, and this in the chemistry world. But engineering was not so much like that because it was a newer sort of field than chemistry because people have been, you know, chemists for for hundreds of years. Right. So those roadblocks didn't exist in engineering. Mm. So she went into engineering because she kind of said, yeah, they couldn't invent rules fast enough to stop me. <laughs> Basically is what it boiled <laughs> through like, to. quick, here she goes. Yeah, they're like, what do we do? We don't have, a, there's no precedent for excluding them because yeah. it was new enough. It was weird. But but again, but she couldn't study it in college because that roadblock was up. So it's, it's weird. It's kind of a reversal. Well, also like, I mean, aircraft engineering was taking off. Aeronautics was taking off at that point. No pun intended. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I read somewhere that it's, it was actually... Um, concentrated in southern california because there was so much clear weather that they could store airplanes outside and not have to worry about them getting rained on and rusting and then they had blue skies to fly basically 360 days a year yeah and this is around the same time ish that jpl was was becoming jpl because yeah everyone's just down in southern california launching rockets and doing weird things (laughs) what an interesting time uh so so yeah so she specialized in rocket propulsion for what eventually became the Rand Corporation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then at the same time, she was taking uh, graduate classes at USC in, ke- in chemistry again. So she got her, her master's degree in chemistry in 1951. So she, so she was going to USC. And for people that don't live in Los Angeles, just so you know, USC is located um, really close to downtown Los Angeles. And it's the University of Southern California, not the University of South Carolina. Right. Which is sometimes confusing if you just Google it. For sure. For sure. So <laughs> she so she was going to the University of Southern California, which is close to downtown Los Angeles, which historically, I mean, it was the nice area of LA, or quote unquote, I mean, there are all these old um, Victorian houses in the area, but there's, right. which are now a lot of them are really run down. Um, but, um, so it was a nice area and that was when USC was established in 1880. It was like a suburb of Los Angeles. Cause it's just, I don't know, a mile and a half or so from downtown. <laughs> it used to be a suburb. Now right. It's just... So with horses and buggies, <laughs> yeah. that's a suburb Exactly. <laughs> with, with cars not so much. It still takes you just as long to travel by car as it uh-huh. did by horse and buggy back Indeed then. Indeed it does. <laughs> um, so, so at, but in the fifties it's, it was not a super nice area. So she didn't live near, um, USC. She lived near UCLA the University of California, Los Angeles, which is in the western part of Los Angeles, which a neighborhood called um, Westwood. And so that was a little bit nicer at the time to live there. So she lived there and would commute to USC, 
but when she wanted to study at night, she didn't want to take public transportation to get to USC to go to the libraries. So she would just kind of go to the UCLA libraries hmm. and she kind of would strike up conversations with with graduate students and postdocs at UCLA because they were like, oh, who are you? We don't know, recognize you. And she said, oh, I'm actually, you know, going to USC. And then they would just fight because, oh, no, no, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> there's a, a big, every big night rivalry. The yeah. They're like, well, your football team sucks. Um <laughs> So, so anyway, so she would um, hang out with these UCLA graduate students, and that's how she actually met her husband, hmm. was that she um, was talking to some grad students, and they said, oh, hey, Linus Pauling is giving a talk. You should come to it with us. And, that, and one of the other people that went to that talk was her future husband. So that's how she met him. Um, side note, Linus Pauling, um, he, he got a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And he, so he, and he did a lot of work about kind of the nature of chemical bonds, uh, molecular biology, um, how enzymes work. So a lot of really cool, like fundamental chemistry stuff and quantum chemistry too. And he also won the Nobel Peace Prize for being uh, very against nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think he's the only person to win a Nobel Prize in those in separate categories like that. Besides, the only two people that have got him in different fields are him. And Marie Curie, because her, you know, chem- yeah, physics and chemistry. Yeah, both of were science. And right. So, yeah, he's the one who's, like, chemistry. yeah, totally yeah. different, uh, totally different ones. But, um, but, yeah, so he got his chemistry one in 1954 and his Nobel Peace Prize in 62. Anywho, so... But that was not her husband. No. She did, she did not marry <laughs> Linus Pauling. Um, but, yeah, but it's it's so funny, the, the conversation that she struck up with uh, her, her eventual husband... Um, she was just said, oh, yeah, you know, what do you what do you, what do you research? And he was telling her about how he wanted to get this certain kind of uh, fuel and do some analysis on it, but he couldn't get his hands on it. And she uh-huh. said, oh, I just got a letter from a supplier that would that was going to give me like a gallon of it. I'm going to just like give it to you. <laughs> it's like, they just like start talking about fuel right away. <laughs> they bonded over over fuel. That's yeah. Nice. And then he asked her out folk dancing. <laughs> And, and she said, this is, this is the quote. It's so cute. Well, I thought, well, I've been a stick in the mud too long. I'm going to go. And then, uh, so when he arrived, we decided that neither of us cared for folk dancing. So we went to the movies <laughs> and within a year we were married. Oh, Yvonne. I can already see like the meet cute scene in this romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so then there is this moment where, um, so she has all these opportunities on the West coast, the stuff that he was interested in, all the jobs were on the East coast. Mm. So it's like, Oh, what do we do? And, um, in the end she, you know, decided to move with him, of course, because she reasoned that good jobs are easier to find than good husbands. And I point that out only because it's something that people quote very, very often and something Mm. that she often told her children kind of in the vein of, look, you like, there are opportunities job-wise, different places. Don't feel like you have to choose between them. I, you know, it's, the message is, I don't know. It's a little, little odd yeah. in a way, but I, I get what she was saying was like, you can figure it out. Don't, don't throw away a person. Just, you know, you'll be able right. to find a job. Like, don't it, worry it about it. It can so go both ways as well. Though. Yeah, but it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's also, she was just trying to say that engineering was very portable as far as a career went. So she was that. happy that that was the case because she, because her husband was really supportive and, you know, loved what she did. And so they were obviously really compatible. So she was yeah. like, well, I'm sure I can figure it out. Hmm. So yeah, make of that what you will. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so they moved, they, they eventually lived near Princeton, and then she worked for several companies before she started working for RCA Astroelectronics in 66. And um, again, this is when she was getting into rocket engineering because 
a lot not a lot of women were doing it so no one was stopping her mm-hmm. and this is the direct quote that i love so much i reckon they would not invent rules to discriminate against one person isn't that so interesting <laughs> i mean i think she is underestimating them but I okay know. i feel like that's it's easier to stop one person like but yeah. she but yeah it was it was she was such an anomaly that no one even knew what to do with her i guess but anyway so but this is when she invented what what she is famous for, which is a hydrazine resistojet. Oh, that is like the funnest thing I've ever said. <laughs> but but what is it? Right. So it's also known as the electrothermal hydrazine thruster. So what was different about this? It uses a single propellant, and um, it reheats it when it leaves the nozzle. Mm-hmm. And so basically, it's just a crazy more efficient use of fuel. So it cut costs and reduced um, the amount, you know, of, of fuel you need. And um, so it's used in satellites, specifically satellites that need to stay in geosynchronous orbit around Earth. And what that means is that it's kind of staying above the same part of Earth, oh, okay. going around Earth the same speed that Earth is rotating. So it looks like it's always in the same space in the sky. Yeah. So it has to make really small adjustments to make to keep that happening. So, yeah, so she found a way to again, reheat the fuel as it leaves mm. so that it's just crazy more efficient. And she told her, um, her son uh, said years later that it was such a simple idea that she felt really lucky that she was the first one to think of it, <laughs> which I think is maybe kind of downplaying it a little bit. She sounds like she was really modest. So, mm-hmm. um, but because sometimes, yeah, it's, it sounds simple after the fact, but you know, a lot of things seem that way after the fact. Yeah. I mean, one person's simple is another person's elegant. Ele- yeah. Elegance is not easy. And this was during the space race. Mm-hmm. So any contribution was super important. I mean, what was it? Soviet Union had put Sputnik up in the air in, 19, or in 1957. We'd respond in 1958. So if this was the mid-60s, we still hadn't landed on the moon yet. Yeah, totally. So... Anyway, so that was, uh, she shared the patent with the company she was working with at the time. So, so she, that's what she invented. Um, she went on to work uh, with NASA on things like uh, the TIROS program, which is a television infrared observational sal- satellite. That was um, one of the first satellites that was used to kind of, as a proof of concept, that satellites were really great for studying Earth, hmm. um, as well as the Mars Observer. So, so yeah, this, I mean, she was inducted in uh, 2010 into the National Inventors Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and the, sa- so the, the same year that the co-inventors of Post-it Notes <laughs> were oh inducted. God. So it was like, so the two dudes <laughs> that made Post-its and one woman I invented they were duly the hydrazine resisto chat. <laughs> Although I, I was actually talking to someone about post-its yesterday, which is really random, but um, I guess they were trying to invent a type of super glue yeah. when they kind of happenstance, you know, just fell upon this, you know, the kind of glue that post-it notes use now, which was terrible glue. Yeah. This glue is really bad at this thing, but it's pretty good at this thing that we didn't intend it to be for. It's all about perspective. Yeah. Just I love those use for... accidental discoveries. Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole episode about accidental discoveries. I mean, I wish I had the to. talent to turn my failed experiments into actual like multi-billion One industries. person's failure is another person's <laughs> success. You guys, just, you know, simple, elegant, whatever. So, yeah. Um, anyway, and she was also awarded the National Medal of Technology and Innovation in 2011 by President Barack Obama. Not I'm going to so say bad. that as many times as I can. <laughs> 
<laughs> of the next couple of months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but um, but yeah. So her um, her the thing she invented, the the resisto jet, has been used and still is used in satellites. I mean, this mm-hmm. is something that was a real game changer. So, uh, and uh, in her personal life, uh, she has you know three children. Naomi is a mechanical engineer, mm-hmm. now now retired. Uh, her son Matt uh, was a geologist, and Joe was um, actually has a background in electrical engineering, but uh, was a commercial real estate developer. So <laughs> it's interesting. So you can say that all of her children went into STEM. Yeah. Not all of them, you know, stayed in it for forever. Two her, out of three ain't bad. Yeah. Joe Joe went in a different direction, but still has you know a degree in electrical engineering. So that's pretty cool. Good for Joe though. Totally. That's, that's a that's a hard Thanksgiving table. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> You're Joe. the commercial real estate developer. Don't worry, Joe. It's fine. Everything's <laughs> we cool. We got you. Everything's cool. And she did like to point out to her children and her younger colleagues that her greatest successes came after the age of 40. Oh. So for, for those of us in our you know late 20s and 30s that are like, oh my God, it's over for me. I haven't done anything cool in it. Don't worry. You can still build stuff that helps satellites. Yvonne Brill didn't do anything. No, I was kidding. <laughs> Until she was over 40. She's just sitting on the couch watching Netflix before then. Yeah, she was just doing boring <laughs> rocket propulsion stuff. <laughs> What a, what, a, what a waste of time. But anyway, she died in 2013. And this is getting into what I referred to earlier. I must admit that I didn't know who Yvonne Brill was until she died mm-hmm. when, when I read her obituary which in the New York Times, which was just god-awful. <laughs> now, okay, some of, some, some of our listeners might remember this. Some people might not. So here we go. You ready Do for this? Tell. Yes. Oh, God. Here is how her obituary in the New York Times read the, the first two paragraphs. I'm not going to read the whole thing. And that's, that's the baby. She made a mean beef stroganoff, followed her husband from job to job, and took eight years off from work to raise three children. The world's best mom, her son Matthew said. <laughs> New paragraph. But Yvonne Brill, who died on Wednesday at 88 in Princeton, New Jersey was also a brilliant rocket scientist who in the early 1970s invented a propulsion system to help keep communication satellites from slipping out of their orbits. Now, side side note. Yeah. Let's, let's, (laughs) there are so many layers (laughs) that we have to unpeel. Let's let's peel them back like Mary Anningwood, like layers of limestone. Okay. To find the coprolites. So we're just going to go through them chronologically. (laughs) All right. She made a mean beef stroganoff. Okay. Not only is that incredibly patronizing, beef stroganoff is not hard to make, you guys. (laughs) You know, like this was not that she made a a good chocolate souffle at 5,000 feet. Yeah. You know, this is... Okay, whatever. She made really good boxed mac and cheese. (laughs) You know? (laughs) She made a mean bowl of cereal. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I definitely, I mean, I think we should all pre-write our obituaries mm-hmm. and I'm going to put in a mean bowl of cereal yeah. in mine. And um, and though she did, you know, she did follow her husband to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this line took eight years off from work later in the obituary, this, this same one, even before it was rewritten. Later, it actually mentions that she worked part-time while she raised her children and then returned to full-time work. So she didn't actually even take eight years off of work. Not that that's even that big of it. That's such a small problem in comparison to these other ones. Yeah. But that is actually factually incorrect. So when the, when the author wrote that, 
and then later on refer talked about how she was working part-time and also consulting while she was raising her children that for some reason didn't tip him off that maybe he is thinking about this differently or just emphasizing yeah. something that's not even true so yeah. okay um the also, world why would you even mention that someone took time off work to raise their kids in the, why, in the why first you, sentence why, why wouldn't you just say they had three kids why yeah why in the first sentence by, is that something yeah. you had to point out the world's best mom her son her son said but yvonne brill was also was also a brilliant rocket scientist but of course implies yeah. that despite the fact that she was not only a woman but a mother she also used a used her brain sometimes I and mean, it's it's totally loaded and the implied justification that you have to be the best mom in order to justify having a career that yeah. could significantly contribute to a scientific field oh dude <laughs> okay so here, and here's how it was changed she was a brilliant rock and scientist who well, I can't rock and scientist. Yeah, you guys, wow. <laughs> she was a brilliant rocket scientist who followed her husband from job to job and took eight years off from work to raise three children. So we didn't he, they didn't um, update that part. The world's best mom, her son Matthew said. She left the company in 1958, however, to care for her young children, keeping her hand in the field by working part-time as a consultant for the FMC Corporation. So that, sorry, I wanted to just bring that out. That's how he worded it. Mm. So she didn't not work, but okay, whatever. But anyway, so that, so he changed it to she was a brilliant rocket scientist. That's, those are the first words. So that's, that's better, but it's still not, not great. I mean, yeah. And you know, this was in 2013. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I'm, in the wake of it, I, I remember... On Twitter, um, some people were sharing obituaries of other scientists written in the same format. Uh -huh. And there's one person whose Twitter handle is uh, Darmith, D-A-U-R-M-I-T-H, who wrote, a, I'm going to read a couple of these. Pierre Curie, married and proud father of two, found time for love and family during his short scientific career. <laughs> Another one. A devout husband and father, Darwin balanced his family duties with the study of the specimens he brought from brought home from his travels. <laughs> his dour personality made everyone think he'd never marry. Even so, Schrodinger got a wife and a Nobel Prize. <laughs> I mean, come on, you guys. We need we need to do better. Yeah. But uh, when I was reading about the very interesting obituary, again, in, in the New York Times, come on, New York Times. Um, when I was reading about that, I came across um, something I hadn't heard of, but I, I really dig this. It's called the Finkbeiner test. Have you ever heard of this? No. It's sort of like um, the Bechtel test for movies mm -hmm. in which you kind of can gauge whether or not it's um, good for representation of women by asking, is there more than one woman in the movie? And if there are two women, do they ever talk to each other about anything other than a dude? Yeah. That's all you have to do. And a lot of movies don't pass it. Low bar. Yeah. Um, so the Finkbeiner test is a test that you should pass if you're writing about a woman in the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. Ah. So, so if you can write an article that doesn't do these things, so don't mention the fact that she's a woman. Uh, like specifically, she is a woman. <laughs> she has lady bits. You know, don't so. Let's see if you can avoid mentioning the fact she's a woman, her husband's job. I think mm. a lot of people want to do that. Uh, her childcare arrangements, uh, how she nurtures her underlings, whether that's, you know, graduate students or, or probably her children. Yeah. Um, how she was taken aback by the competitiveness in her field, how she's a role model for other women, or how she's the first woman to dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Um, and... The, it's funny, the first woman to thing, um, 
the person who came up with this idea was found herself writing about how someone someone was the first woman to win a specific prize and then mm-hmm. took it out because she realized that said more about the prize yeah. committee than it says about this particular scientist. So maybe that's not relevant. And this doesn't mean that you can't write about you know, sexism in the STEM fields. Mm -hmm. That's separate. But this is when you're just profiling a scientist. You don't have to mention all these things. Yeah, I think really the only time that it's appropriate to mention um, kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, the thing thing is, is that it's much more sensitive issue if it's a woman scientist, because, of course, the the instinct is to say, well, the only reason you're mentioning is because she's a woman. So even if that's not your reason, it still comes across that way. Mm -hmm. And but I think the only appropriate time to mention that as someone like uh, Dr. Lucy Jones, you know, who's the seismologist and expert on earthquakes here in LA. There's actually uh, footage of her from, I think it's the 80s or the 90s, where she's giving television interviews after earthquakes to like explain what happened. And because she was called out, you know, whenever an earthquake happens, so like in the middle of the night, during dinner or whatever, they're not predictable. (laughs) She's holding her kid. And so she's giving these television interviews, like while holding her kid, her kid's just like hanging out. And like people mentioned that it made it seem like, oh, this is not such a huge deal because here's this person and she's just like me. She has her kid with her. And I don't know, there's all these pictures of her. and I just think it's hilarious. But I think that that merits a mention because there's actually she brought her kid to work well yeah when there are actual (laughs) images when there are actual times to show that representation it can be really great or if the kid was working in the lab you know like Mm -hmm. in a factory but just in a science lab Mm -hmm. then you can do it but otherwise yeah yeah there's this really great comic by um sarah anderson whose um comic collection is called sarah's scribbles she has this, she doesn't usually do a lot of sciencey stuff. It's usually very slice of life and about all of our anxieties and stuff. She's great. Look her up. But um, she does this great one where there's this, this scientist up in front of a bunch of people that says, oh, I'm a neuroscientist and I'd work on all these different things. Does anyone have any questions? And then the first person asks, yes, what is it like to be a woman in your field? And then the last <laughs> panel is just her with this, like, lines under her eyes, like, oh, my God, why? <laughs> Can I not talk about anything else, please? Yeah. Um, but it's it's funny, the beef stroganoff thing. Because at the time, if you Googled B. Stroganoff, the obit was the top hit. Not even a recipe. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. But if you look up, you know, uh, B. Stroganoff obituary, you'll you'll of course find it and everything. And um, actually, when I was driving over here, I was talking to my mom and I was telling her that I was going to be talking about Yvonne Brill today. And I said, do you you know who she is? My mom said, yeah, I do. I said, do you did you know about her before her obituary in The New York Times? My mom said, no. (laughs) So I think the really odd silver lining of having such a god awful (laughs) introduction to her obituary is that everybody heard about it. And I must admit, I didn't know who she was until until that. Um, So I guess that's some good that came out of it was that there was just like this laser focus on it and i read about what she did because i read about her very very strange obituary but yeah but of course hopefully we don't have to do that again yeah you know let's let's not i think in general maybe you shouldn't mention what people cooked unless they were chefs yeah you know or like tend to burnt down an important building while they were cooking Uh, like yeah this we don't have to always say oh but don't worry this person was also a human we know that they were a human yeah (laughs) it's okay we know that they (laughs) ate food we were i was already pretty pretty confident about that female human (laughs) yeah that's the thing is that somehow you know a lot of times you know men are allowed to just be their career but we always have to emphasize that oh but you know this 
this scientist who was a woman was also really into her family and stuff. (laughs) Okay. She wasn't a terrible woman. (laughs) (laughs) She was still a lady. She was sciencey, but not terrible. (laughs) But not too sciencey. I don't know. Very strange. But anyway, so Uh, beef stroganoff, I think, um, you know, that's not really a brunchy food. (laughs) I I wonder if she would be interested in having some. I mean, I wonder if she, I I don't know. We shouldn't rename beef stroganoff. From now on, we should never say beef stroganoff. We should only say New York Times sexist mess. (laughs) Yvonne Brill's favorite food. I mean, so she made a good one, but did she like it? Was that her favorite thing? I don't, I don't know. I mean, who gave, who gave this writer the beef stroganoff thing? Maybe her kids were like, maybe he asked, oh yeah, what was your favorite thing she made? But maybe, you know what? Maybe she didn't even like beef stroganoff. It's a weird, it's, it's weird just to think where that came from and why it was included. But hopefully, hopefully we all learned from this. Yeah, so when we invite her to brunch, which of course we're going to. Yeah. Because she sounds like such a blast. I wonder what she would order. Probably something with beef. <laughs> what is something beefy that you have for, for brunch? I'm kind of blanking. Mm. It's, not really a, it's not really a brunchy meat. That's true. It's all about pork, isn't it? Hmm. I don't understand who made these rules up. <laughs> but they were brilliant. <laughs> I mean, you can order a burger for a brunch and no one's going to stop true. you. That's true. But yeah, brunch with, brunch with Yvonne. Absolutely. And she surely did brunch. She's, she lived on the East Coast for a long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll talk about satellites. And we'll talk about all the things that we do with satellites now. I mean, I wonder... Well, again, she, she only died a few years ago. So yeah. she's very well aware of how many, how many satellites are orbiting Earth right now. Yeah. Dozens. Dozens. And they're getting smaller and smaller. I mean, they're the mm-hmm. size of shoeboxes mm-hmm. now. Actually, another one just launched recently. It's called GOES-R. GOES, which stands for Geostationary operational environmental satellite hmm. and r is it refers to it's this like in the alphabet it's that series like you know there were a yeah. c d e whatever uh so it's the r series and now yeah, that just launched and it's gonna do a lot of stuff to watch watch earth and takes lots, lots of measurements yeah i mean a lot of those satellites are aimed earthward so that we can figure out what's going on with the climate yeah, it's I think measuring ocean levels that nasa does a ton of stuff yeah. looking at earth i mean it is a very important planet. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Perhaps the most important from our perspective. It might be my favorite planet. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it was only with satellites that we figured out. You know, we knew ocean levels were rising, but we didn't realize exactly how that was distributed because it doesn't rise uniformly around the world. It, it's like if it's warmer in a warm area along the equator, the water expands. If it's around a glacier, it's melting. It actually like dips down. And they've only figured that out within the past couple of years, actually. So well, it's just like any crazy. other problem. You need to take a step back yeah. to really see it clearly. Yeah. So thanks, NASA. Thanks, Yvonne. Yeah, good. you're doing a good job. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Yeah. Keep trying to save us from ourselves. <laughs> oh, God. Please don't give up on us. Oh, <laughs> so that's it for this episode of Science Brunch. Thank you so much for listening to us talking about Yvonne Brill and all the cool stuff that she did and all the recipes she did not make. (laughs) Go to our website, sciencebrunch.org, and sign up for our mailing list and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe and rate and review and comment and, I don't know, other stuff. Do do anything that you want to do. It's all good. And we'll see you next time. (laughs) 